From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that delves into the lives and stories behind the big ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. How we define ourselves and our identity comes from a place of difference. At least that's what Carolyn Emker writes about in her book How We Desire, which investigates gender and identity. But her own identity? Now that's more complicated. Emka has been reporting from war zones since the early 2000s, where she's witnessed and written about some of the most horrific acts humans are capable of. She remains a fearless and completely original thinker on all things from the effect that atrocity has on those who are compelled to report upon it, to the ethics of journalism, to what it means to be queer today. Welcome to It's a Long Story. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's our absolute pleasure. I'd like to go back to the beginning of your of your life. What sort of values were in your family? What sort of political values did your parents hold? I, I think I had conflicts with my father about, about pretty much every issue except politics. Huh. Uh, maybe also except soccer, but um, <laughs> uh, the no, but the the the, the political. And moral socialization with reference to, uh, you know, post-war Germany with reference to how to historically reflect and critically reflect on the Shoah, um, that was something that uh, I think was was key for my father and my mother. My, uh, uh, and it was key then for my generation. I'm born in 67. Um, so I grew up or went to high school in the 70s and the 80s. And I think this understanding of my generation uh, uh, as a generation that had to do better, that could never, ever allow this to happen again, that there should never, ever be, you know, a politics of racism and anti-Semitism and, you know, a culture where some people are marked as you know, belonging properly in others as as not belonging. So I think that was something that was very, very crucial for me. It wasn't only shaped at home, but it was also shaped in school. Um, but I think that's that that was that was key for my my upbringing. So what sort of adolescence did you have? Did you sort of sail through getting along with your mother and your father and your teachers and authority figures or did oh, you Oh, no. Oh, no, no. I think it was painful, you know, as probably most teenage times are for, mo- for most teenagers and adolescents. You know, adolescence is this weird phase where you are haunted by emotions for which you don't really have terms yet. Mm. You feel overwhelmed with anger or joy or desire and you can't really explain what it is or what you know what what's really the source of that affect um so i think there is something really painful about that time also because we don't yet have the language we don't really know how to resist Best we know. I mean, at, at least that's how I experienced uh, my adolescence. There were many, many rituals, many practices, many games that I didn't feel. You know, I'd be, I be. I don't know. I wanted to join in. Uh, I didn't like to drink at the time. So, um, so I think. Um, did that put you on the out of with the peer group? Or? No, I think that part of what was really important, at least where I went to school, was sports. So if you're a good athlete, you could get away with other things. So I was good in sports and that saved probably uh, other conflicts. 
at the time, I, it, it, it was really also about saying no. And I think all identity starts with you're disagreeing with something. You're making a choice. You're you deciding this is what I really want or this is who I really am. And I don't think I could say at the time this is who I really am other than probably you know, a smart ass or someone who loved reading books. But so the probably adolescents are better at saying what they're not than what they are. Yeah, but but that's a key experience. I think it's I think it's very very crucial that you learn how to say no. I think that's where both identity and freedom begin in your you know, I mean, freedom is not is nothing. I think that you own. It's not a property. Freedom is always something that you do, and you have to do it again and again and again and again to to figure it out. So it's it's it's, it's a never ending pro. And it doesn't stop. <laughs> you know, when you're out of adolescence. And I think that was probably the most important experience uh, during the, the, you know, those years that uh, I felt a need to say no to many things. You've had two parallel careers, really. You've been a philosopher and have a PhD in philosophy, and you've also been a journalist and generally uh, reported from conflict zones and conflict mm-hmm. areas. What's been the relationship between those two things for you? How, what, how has one informed the other and, and, and back again? People who are my colleagues uh, within journalism would probably say she's not a real journalist; she's just a philosopher. And probably within the academy and the university, people would say oh, she's not a real philosopher; she's, you know, she's just a journalist. Um, so I don't fit in in either worlds. The training of philosophy uh, has so deeply shaped and formatted and informed my thinking that I think I'm first and last always someone who, sh- who who thinks with these instruments of philosophical or political theory it's it's I can't stop that I can't I can't get it out of my system it's I I, I think in these uh, in this vocabulary I think in that uh, you know in these theories and so if I travel it's the questions that I have, are probably you know deeply philosophical questions. Um, I think I'd be lost within the university these days. So I do feel uh, I'm, I, whenever I was teaching, I I missed the world. I missed I, I mostly actually missed the people that you encounter when you travel to these uh, you know areas of conflict. The the sheer hospitality and generosity of people, in particular in impoverished uh, countries, is so overwhelming, is so beautiful that I would always long for that. I would always long for that experience of travelling. One of the things that you've attributed your success as a war reporter on is, uh, as you said, I'm not afraid of strangers. That is definitely something I inherited from my mother, uh, and um, I'm ju- I'm just usually not I'm not afraid of strangers. I'm not afraid of you know traveling in an area that is unknown to me, uh, and I generally enjoy meeting people on these trips. 
Are you ever afraid? There's certain situations that I'm absolutely terrified uh, of, and that is mob. That is when there's huge groups of people, uh, you know, w w full of anger or, you know, people who are upset who go on a protest or on a march or just meet on the street. I'm terrified of that. Why? Um, because uh, it's it's... There is something about the the dynamic of a herd of a you know of a of a big group that's really uncontrollable. But then I would always say fear is not really rational. I mean, it it's not. There are certain phenomena that I'm really scared of, and if I encounter them, I go away. I try to avoid these situations. What was the first war zone you reported from? Uh, Kosovo. And how was that? I don't think I was prepared at all for what I was witnessing there. I don't know if one could have prepared me for seeing such uh, horror. The experience was so overwhelming because I felt that war was something that 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 was bigger than my own ability to describe it. I felt I failed as a journalist. I felt I could not really convey how, how painful and horrific uh, it was. And um, I think I think that was very very important about the first experience that you know the first witnessing of mm. of a war zone was, was the sense of failure you've written actually and i'm quoting you here that is the burden of the witness to remain with a feeling of failure of emptiness because even the most accurate account does not grasp the bleakness of war yes absolutely and i think very very often people think oh it's all exaggerated you know there's this mainstream critique of media of television and there's the assumption uh, that reporters would always make the stories bigger than they really are. Whereas I would say you have no clue. It's so much worse uh, than anything we can, you know, portray or convey in articles or, or with photographs or, or, you know, in documentaries. And so... Um, I would always say what people perceive or what they can see, you know, via the media is is much much less than than you know what, what's going on in the war zone. Kosovo at the end of the 90s that you started what became a ritual when you came back from war zones, which was writing long emails to a group of friends to try and convey what it was. You've said, and I'm quoting you again here, this writing would eventually become a cathartic task, not merely an intellectual one. I realised that I came back from Kosovo and my friends didn't really ask where I'd been and I didn't really tell them how terrible it was. And so I also realised it wasn't only about the professional 
not being able to properly describe it. But it was also, I realized now I, I have to find a way of speaking to my friends about this because um, otherwise I will lose my friends. Mm. They were all really shocked. Uh, they read these emails and, uh, you know, it, 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 it wasn't the kind of text that could have been published in the news magazine that I worked for because we're way too subjective. I also described how we traveled or how we slept or what effects, you know, everything had on, on me as, as, as a person, as a witness. Um, but it, it, as you said, I mean, it became a ritual. I did that after every, you know, region of crisis that I traveled to. I began, you know, I, I, I sat down and I, I tried to, to explain that to my friends. When you are a reporter going in to crisis, often by the time you arrive, the sort of flashpoint is called and you're seeing the aftermath and you're not an eyewitness by that point. You're relying on people that were there. How do you, as a journalist, sort through that? And does it even matter? It's extremely complicated. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really complicated. And, uh, of course, I'm sure I've made hundreds of mistakes over the course of all these years. I'm sure I've trusted someone or believed his account and that was maybe exaggerated or maybe it was propaganda or, you know, maybe he made it up. I don't know. I mean, there's no methodology. There's no fact checking for the question of do I trust a person? Do I find someone's account credible? Uh, what is worse is that I probably also made the other mistake. I probably did not believe an account that was true, uh, which I find even worse. And so to some extent, I mean, all you can do is you, you, you try to collect as much evidence as possible. You try to speak to as many people as possible to, to falsify or verify what you hear. It just requires a very careful hermeneutics. I think it requires uh, enormous self-doubt that you permanently question yourself and your own impressions. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think there is any better way than just uh, working hard. There's this idea, which I think is quite rightly critiqued, that journalists come in and need to be objective and need to sort of park their own sort of experiences. Yeah, that's hilarious, door. isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, when you are writing for a mainstream news outlet, which you've done extensively and a lot of this reporting were were for, you know, major German publications. How did you broker that with your editors and with your own style? How did you how did you negotiate? It's very, very difficult. The first magazine that I worked for, that there was nothing to negotiate. They were so uh, self-confident and strict and they indeed had that very, very traditional fixed understanding of objectivity. So uh, there was no subjective voice allowed in the text. You were not allowed to say I. You had to, you know, write reports um, as if you were the all-knowledgeable writer. And um, I found it uh, extremely disconcerting, uh, I mean, intellectually also slightly I don't know, worrying, I would say. Because, of course, uh, 
you know, as a witness, you are someone who can fail, as we talked about before. I can make wrong calls. I can make false judgments. Um, that's one aspect. And then, of course, this, the, the situation also has an effect on me as a, you know, I, I can't, I'm not a distant uh you know, I, I'm not distant when I'm also being shot at. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not an outsider uh, when I'm also traveling with people who are, you know, being uh, expelled or deported and, and, and suddenly are being arrested or attacked. Now, evidently, of course, I remain an outsider in the sense of I'm privileged to have a, I have, I have a ticket, a return ticket, I have a passport, I can leave, I have a government that would protect me in case something happened. But this idea of objectivity, um, I think, is really damaging. I have to try to reflect on my own bias, but to assume I didn't have a bias, that's just silly. The task of a good reporter is to reflect on it, to work against it, to make an effort of being impartial and listening to all sides and getting all kinds of perspectives. Um, but um, it was difficult to negotiate. Once I left that particular news magazine, I was working uh, for another weekly paper. And once I had published these letters, um, I was much more able to write with my own voice to also make transparent uh, what I did see, what I didn't see, how I traveled. And so my own way of, I would call subjective, you know, reflective reporting um, uh, was much more loud and, 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 and I was much more able to, to write that way. Mm. When you go into a very poor place or a very, um, you know, war-torn place or or a place where you are forming relationships with desperate people, the kind of responsibility that you have for their story is is enormous. How do you feel about the fact that you're reflecting somebody else's experience? One of the ex experiences that repeated itself over and over and over again wherever I travelled was that uh, uh, victims of violence, uh, uh, refugees who'd been expelled or deported, people who'd been tortured or raped, over and over and over again asked me, will you write this down? Mm. They beg you not for money, not for taking them uh, with you in your car, not for direct practical help, but they over and over and over ask you, will you write this down? They so, want their story on record. Yes. Uh, they, uh, and I think it has to do evidently with, with people who are victims of, of, of you know, long-term violence. They have the experience of being negated. To find someone who sits down with them and says, you know, I will write this down, it just means that they're to some extent, reintegrated into the, the universal global we. And there's an ethical obligation to bear witness uh, to these stories. And I, I did take that seriously always. Desire, which was published in 2013 um, and more recently in English, is like 
really a combination of journalism and philosophy. Um, but the subject of the journalism in this case is really yourself and your life. <laughs> yes. How did that book come about? Why did you, when did you first start thinking about it? Well, indeed, I mean, it's a very uh, uh, bizarre uh, uh, decision for a writer who's always focused on other people's lives then to focus you know, on my own life and my own uh, adolescence. And, um, but then I always, always thought about um, these years at school and I always thought about uh, the codes and the norms that shaped our understanding of what it means to be male, what it means to be female, um, what kind of desire was acceptable at the time and what kind of desires were tabooed, where silence were not talked about. And um, so in that sense, yes, it is a very personal, very intimate uh, account. It's a very, very personal book on one hand. And yet um, uh, for someone queer, uh, you know, that desire unfortunately is not just personal, it is not just individual, but it is always a, a highly contested political issue and, and, and still nowadays. So I think that is why I felt I could <laughs> write about it. It's not just about me, but it's about, uh, you know, desire in general and in particular about uh, queer desire. Mm. I mean, one of the things I like about that book is that you do politicise queer identity. In fact, you really argue that 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 the reason there is a queer identity is because it's had to be political. You know that 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 historically queer people have had to politicise. They've had to fight for rights. They've had to, you know, do all of these things to get sort of you know basic recognition, um, you know, acceptance. You, know, so you talk on. as if it was past tense. I mean, I would say, <laughs> well, that's unfortunately, right. <laughs> it's still, it's, it's not over yet. I mean, it really we, isn't. We, we, no. Look, I'm, I'm still on a high from Australia having, um, having, having passed oh, same-sex marriage. I think now that we have same-sex marriage in Australia, you think that it's done, it's yeah, over? That's it. okay, no, we can... no, no, that's wishful thinking, dear. Uh, dream on. No, fair enough. Um, no, no, no. I, no, I think it, it, uh, it is still, it is something that is being... Uh, it's it's still you know against the norm. It's still very often silenced in many many countries in the world. It's still criminalized, um, and so I think we are still uh, very vulnerable. Uh, mm. uh, and and so it is still a political issue. If it weren't a political issue, let's just imagine some utopia where where forever you want you know. that, right? <laughs> okay. Um, do you think that queer identity would be as distinct if there hadn't been the kind of political pressures on being queer and oh, look, there aren't political pressures on being queer now? Oh, look, I, you know, I do think, uh, 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 maybe I wasn't precise about this before, I do think heterosexuality is as, you know, it's that's also, a, you know, a highly, you know, politically, socially, ideologically, religiously, culturally um, configurated um, uh, practice or identity. So hundred percent. But when it's the norm, then absolutely. So that's the only difference. But I wouldn't say you know you'd have here on one hand this sort of non-political, you know, private, comfortable heterosexuality, and on the other hand you had you know a political issue about queer identity. I think it's all desires. The way we 
understand our relationships, the way we understand our gestures, the way we understand our sexual practices, the way we think about the spaces in which we can, you know, live that desire. All of that is, you know, ideologically and politically uh, constructed and organized. And so, um, you know, I can't really imagine a world, a society in which that wouldn't be, um, you know, zone of contestation. Um, uh, and yet, indeed, as you say, uh, you know, for for uh, practices or, you know, life forms that are considered, uh, how's it called in Russia, non-traditional? I love that. <laughs> um <clears throat> Of course, it will always be a stronger uh, uh, struggle to, mm. to, 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 to fight uh, for one's love and one's desire. Your own, um, you know, coming out story, if you like, um, is non-traditional. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, in that, you know, your, the objects of your desire, your romantic partners right up until your mid-20s were men and then... Yeah. They weren't. Um, exactly, then they weren't. I was I was very, very slow in discovering that, if that's what, what you wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think it took you so long? I have no idea. I think everyone who's, who's, who's LGBTIQ, you, you try to, once you've figured it out, <laughs> you try to uh, rationalise your past and make it look linear and, you know, you try to read into something, oh, that's, you know... That I was the moment. That was the moment or, you know, probably already, you know, my math teacher. And, you know, I don't know. So I think that's absurd. I, I You know, maybe I was just extremely slow. Maybe I was just so concerned with being allowed to express my intellectual desires. That was a big struggle. That wasn't that easy uh, either. Um, maybe it was just that uh, the first woman I met of whom I knew uh, she was bisexual, um, I immediately fell in love with. Or maybe had I met one you know, I don't know, earlier, I would have been quicker. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just wasn't the fastest. When um, when you travel and when you are working in, as you have, in, in many countries where there is, you know, where homosexuality is illegal, there are extraordinarily homophobic cultures and cultural practices, how do you broker that? It very, very much depends. Uh, I don't think there's a rule. It's, it's, it's much more of an intuition in which situation do I have to be extremely careful in which situation do, can I trust someone enough to, to say how I live? Um, I describe this in my book. I mean, the, sort of the classic situation is that you travel to... In a Muslim country where 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 homosexuality is 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 illegal, and you know you meet people, you know, on the street somewhere or on a tea house or I don't know on 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 farmland somewhere, and just by way of you know introducing oneself and by getting to know each other, at some point they always ask, you know, are you married? 
And then, you know, already what's coming, and you know, already this is going to be difficult. And so I say no. And, uh, you know, but I don't say I live with my female partner. Yeah, mm. I, I, I don't. So it's, it's uh, you, 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 you're always lying. You're always keeping something from the others. You always make, try to make sure that you're still polite. I, I really care about that. And you have to be extremely careful in not threatening others, uh, not being a risk to your translator or driver with whom I'm traveling. So it means being silent about something. It means lying about something. I try to lie as little as possible and just not express myself completely. But it's tough. You're living back in Berlin now, mm -hmm. largely. What's your life like now? Um, at the moment, I don't do these uh, journeys to reasons of crisis. The last couple of years, I, I, I mostly wrote books that required a little bit, <laughs> I mean, more time of me sitting down in, on my desk uh, in Berlin. And then also the rise of right-wing, right-populist, right-radical parties in Europe um, has has somewhat changed my sense of where I'm needed most. So at the moment, I feel, I wouldn't say the region of crisis is Europe, but I would say, no, there are, there are movements. Um, there are, you know, there is a political discourse uh, that I find so disconcerting and, and upsetting that I do feel I'm, I'm needed at the moment most or I can do the best work at the moment in Europe. Where do you think that the rise of the far right in Europe is coming from? I think there's many, many, many factors that are coming together. I think on one hand, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 gave many people a much longer lasting shock and sense of disorientation than the political governments wanted to, I don't know, admit. So I think um, there is a real... Um, Indignation, I think there is uh, a political melancholy about the aggressiveness of global capitalism, about um, the lack of investments in social infrastructure. I think many, many people feel um, abandoned by, um, you know, a, a, a democratic society that uh, doesn't care enough really about social inequality, about social mobility, about... Well, the most know. basic level about its citizens. Exactly. And so I think that is one aspect. And then I think we just have a number of parties that really instrumentalize mm. this sense of political melancholy and project it onto, you know, victims that they seem fit outsiders, uh, outsiders and so they've ju there's just been uh, you know a discourse and a narration of the other and the other then is look at australia i mean it's it's mm. it's you know migrants it's refugees um that's also what we have in europe it's very very often also um you know lgbtq is very often against gays 
Uh, it's it look it very much depends on the country. And you know, in in the United States, it's uh, you know it's against Mexicans. Uh, in Brazil, it's against trans. It's against women. It's you know. So I think each of these right populist authoritarian regimes or governments now chooses whatever kind of other they f- seem fit best to fulfill that role of an alleged threat. So what sort of work are you doing to counter this threat? This, you know, uh, the threat of the of the movements. I, I write, I speak, I have a monthly discussion format in Berlin in one of the main theatres. Um, I have a, uh, have a column in one of the uh, you know daily national papers, but I travel around a lot. I, 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 I try at the moment I think I'm speaking more than I'm writing. We have to look for spaces that we can fill and and you know look for for locations uh, where we can have you know serious uh, positive, constructive uh, discussions on the, the, the societies that we want to live in. Mm. You've also said that um, you're becoming more and more interested in potential for joy. Oh, yes, I'm always, but that's what I always cared about, that it's really, really key for any discourse on uh, or, or any vision for a different world is I think we always need to have both. We need to have that political melancholy. We need to address... Uh, the pain over injustices and inequality. But at the same time, I think we need to come up with narratives of happiness. We need, I mean, I I can't write a a book about gay desire. I can't write a book about, you know, feminist visions. Or I can't write a a book about, you know, democratic pluralist societies without really giving hope. I, I think we need to find a language, a narrative that is offering joy and fun. Carolyn Emke, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thanks very much for having me. You can watch Carolyn Emke's All About Women event on the Sydney Opera House YouTube channel or find the link in our show notes. On the podcast next week is author Sahela Abdullahi. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Blue Mitchell, Nerida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>